Love does reign. And I'm thankful today that we can celebrate uh, Jesus is alive. This is the third week of a four-week series uh, titled uh, Love Reigns. We've looked at love reigns over our past. We are looking today at uh, how love reigns over our present. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at how the love reigns over our future. You know, as I consider the present uh, and where we are right now, I find that too often we fall to actually one side uh, or the other of our lifetime. We either are always looking back to how things used to be, or we're looking forward to how things will be, or at least what we hope will be. But unfortunately, we are rarely satisfied with what's happening right now. Do you find that to be the case? Am I the only one? How many of you, when you were younger, said, oh, I just can't wait till I'm older? How many of you who are older say, oh, I wish I could go back to being younger? You know, we're never satisfied with where we are. We're always thinking either forward or backwards. I've been working on my doctorate at uh, Liberty University on church revitalization. And what's true about individuals is also true about churches. New church plants are waiting until the time they actually grow up and they're not worried about finances and membership. It's just all stable. And older churches are always looking back to the good old days when it used to be so good and young and all this stuff. And so there's always this, this, this tension of whether we're going forward or want to look backwards and we're missing the very gift God has given us and it's called the present. How many of you are thankful that you're alive today. You're not promised tomorrow. Uh, you know, the other day at, at the uh, celebration of life service for Julianne Carter, we ended the service with a great hymn of the faith. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. If I was a songwriter, I think I would change it to just say, because he lives, I can face today. Because I don't know if I'll have a tomorrow other than in his presence. And sometimes we just need enough faith to live today. What are we going to do with the day God has given us? You know, one of my favorite movies uh, when I was in high school uh, was, um, oh goodness, what's that movie? I'm having that 50 plus moment again. Um, Robin Williams was in this movie. He was a teacher and he would say, carpe diem, seize the day. What was the movie? Thank you. Everybody knows it. There was just something about seizing the day. We're, we're always looking either ahead or behind, but we're not capturing the opportunity God gives us right now, right in front of us. And so today I want us to see how love reigns in our lives, right here in the present. Today I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I spent, uh, spent ample time in Romans chapter 12 when I first got here last fall. But once again, I want to go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, pick up the black Bible in the pew rack right in front of you, and you can turn to page 891. Love reigns over our present. And, and if you're taking notes, I don't believe they'll be on the screen but if you're taking notes, there are basically five words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 that I want to focus on. What I would call five words to live by. 
Now, as I started thinking about that kind of outline, I thought there are a lot of groupings of words that I like to live by. One is, I will not give up. That's five words to live by. We just sang a song that had five words. It hit me. I'm watching this going, yes, Christ is enough for me. There are five words you can live by. Tomorrow, when you, you get up and, and something disappointing happens and something doesn't work out the way you wanted, you just need to say those five words to yourself. Christ is enough for me. But there are five words in this, this two, these two verses that I want to highlight as five words that you can live by every single day that will keep you focused on what God is doing in you in this very moment. Let me read the two verses together, and then we'll, we'll walk back through what these words are going to be that I'll highlight. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here are the five words. I'll just go ahead and highlight them, and then I'm going to walk back through them. The words that I'm selecting today right out of this text is number one is mercies. Number two is living. Number three is acceptable, which is listed twice, once in verse one, once in verse five. The fourth word is transformed, and the fifth word is mind. So let's consider the first word, mercies, because this is where Paul begins. I appeal to you, therefore, and in this whole chapter can only be possible because of the mercies of God. Paul exhorts believers, uh, because of God's mercies, the rest of this is possible. Jonathan Edwards who was one of the, the greatest uh, preachers and, and theologians this country has ever produced, said this, God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. And if you understand the scriptural teaching about where we are as sinners, we're all enemies of God outside of his grace. So God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. Jonathan Edwards goes on and says, Though he is infinitely above all and stands in no need of creatures, yet he is graciously pleased to take a merciful notice of poor worms in the dust. Wow, what a great reminder. Not that God benefits from involving us and adopting us into his kingdom. No, all of the gain is on our side because God is infinitely wise and holy and perfect and we are sinful and separated. But in his mercy, he does not count our sins against us and give us the full wrath that we deserve because Christ is enough for us. Christ paid the penalty. I want to remind you what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says. When you are in Christ, when you've received the full forgiveness of Jesus, what he did on the cross and rose from the grave, when you trust in him as your only Savior, it tells us very clearly in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You do not stand and condemn yourself. Neither do you stand in judgment to condemn others. In Christ, we are covered. Our sins, past, present, future, are covered. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every person in the Old Testament, every person in the New Testament, every person since the days of the Bible have been fallen sinners that had to have been saved by grace. And you and I fall into that same category. And I'm thankful for the mercy of God that forgives us and does not give us what we truly deserve. What is mercy? Mercy is shown even in the first few pages of the Bible. As Adam and Eve sinned against God, God expresses his mercy in their lives when he covered their nakedness with the skins of sacrificed animals. God killed animals to take the skin to cover Adam and Eve, though they did not deserve it. In Israel, they had what was known as the mercy seat. The mercy seat is where God would meet with the priest on Israel's behalf. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 25. The mercy seat. The Greek word for mercy seat is translated from the Old Testament, hilasterion. Uh, it translates propitiation. That's a fun word to say. Propitiation. If you read in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, you'll understand that, that God has sent a new mercy seat. Christ has become once and for all acceptable in the wrath-satisfying sacrifice on our behalf. Because of Christ in his work on the cross, he is our mercy seat and all is forgiven. His blood covered our sin. Jesus Christ, our mercy seat. Stephen Nichols, a theologian of our day, says God's desire to meet with his people is great. And the blood of the spotless lamb is the only means by which that meeting is possible. We would not be entering into God's presence unless someone named Christ stepped in and made that possible. He goes on, he says, the mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest was a pre-configured Christ to come. See, the mercy seat of the Old Testament was just as real as the cross of the New Testament and Christ covered it all, no more sacrifices for sin. See, God's mercy is great and it never runs out. I'm thankful that there's never an empty warning, empty warning in the dashboard of heaven. Oh, we're out of mercy today. You know, we, we used it all up yesterday. We were so busy. How many of you, by the way, I always like to poll, just find out what's going on in the congregation. How many of you are those people who get in your spouse's car and it's always on empty and they expect you to fill that up? I don't know anybody like that. I just was wondering. When I go to the Lord in prayer, I'm thankful there's not an empty sign. No more mercies. You know what Jesus has promised us, what the Father showed us, even the Old Testament, in Lamentations 3.23? God's mercies are new. How often? And how many of you need his mercy every morning?
mercy, that, that all that you were involved in the day before, all the thoughts, all the words, all the actions, all the things that, that were not worthy of him, and, and you're expecting him to give you a, a greater day, but what you deserve is far less than that. But his mercies are brand new. Some of you lose sleep at night because you worry and you're anxious about so many things. Things aren't going right and you don't know how to solve it and all. You need to turn that over to the Lord because guess what? His mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It's a reminder that we're not always faithful. We make great claims. We boast, oh, we're, we're doing it right. But we are not faithful. Oh, we have moments, maybe even seasons of faithfulness, but it's God's faithfulness that we must depend upon. And so that's why he gives his mercy, because he is faithful. It never runs out. So that's mercy. That's, that's a word that I don't ever want to move beyond. We may think of the, uh, the death of Christ and his resurrection as a past tense event, but I tell you, the mercy that comes from that is a daily present gift to us. The second word is living. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is that which has been killed, you know, uh, put to death on our behalf. But here, Christ is the true sacrifice. Therefore, what does this mean that we're the living sacrifice? This living word is a present active participle. I mean, it's an ongoing, living, active action. What I believe this passage is saying is that Jesus died for you and rose from the grave so that you would actively, daily live for him. That we sacrifice everything else because nothing is worthy as he is. We'd sell it all. In order just to have the treasure of Christ. This is a living sacrifice. That means I can't live yesterday and I can't live tomorrow. But I can live today. Is all of today sacrificed to live for him? Is he going to have your day today? Today is the Lord's day. Do we still use that language? Sunday is the Lord's day. Some people think this is just an interruption in our week. The Lord's day is not an interruption for our week. It's a very gift for us to slow down and pause and, and rest and focus on what matters. If I told you you're going to have a job next year that's going to give you 52 days off, would you sign up for that kind of employment? 52 days where you don't have to do anything. And here's what the Lord does in our calendar. He gives us 52 Sundays to say, stop working, stop running, trying to gain for tomorrow or, or regret you know, of yesterday. Just rest in him. Live for him. You'll find rest for your souls. My question about living here, which by the way, we truly do have a, a, an opportunity in Christ to truly live. 
You know, in John chapter 15, it, it tells us, you know, talking about the, the, the vine and the branches and, and using the illustration, it says that apart from him, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. You're paralyzed spiritually. But when you're in Christ, what does it say? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the question is, are you living the Christian life as if you're paralyzed or that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Sometimes we, we act like, oh, I don't know if I can do anything today. I just don't have it in me. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You can do all things that Christ calls you to when you trust in him. I wonder how you would fill in the blank here. I'm using Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, but before I fill it in with what Paul says in this verse, I want you to fill it in the blank in your mind. To live is blank. What do you fill that in with? When I think about my life, when I'm really living, I am whatever that is. To live is health. Some people, that's, their whole goal is just to be healthy. There's nothing wrong with being healthy. But you realize one day your health will cease. Sometimes people say, to live is wealth. If I can just gain another dollar. And, and I don't remember who it was in the past. I probably remembered, but I don't know what, anything much anymore. But, all right, so he, he said, you know, how much is enough? Just one more dollar. To live is, is just another dollar. Some people live because they want to get another trophy or another degree or whatever it is. What is it you truly feel? Don't, don't tell me what you would like it to be. Tell me what it really is. What motivates you every day? I live for this. Because the remainder of that verse, if you were filling the blank, to live is whatever that is. To live is, the answer at the end is, to die then would be loss. Because there's not one thing you live for in this earth that you can take with you. Everything that you accumulate. I was talking with someone this morning. People who, who drive hard and, and they work well. And that's a good thing. It's a good Christian work ethic. We drive and to, to attain, to, to, get, to, to, to get that gold watch when you retire or whatever. But some people, they work their entire lives very hard. They retire and the next week they die. I've known too many who drive themselves so much, they never enjoy the life they've been given. They just drive thinking, well, later I'll do these things. And then they come where they don't have the health that they need. The relationships that they burned up while they were working or, or striving. And then perhaps they don't even live very long in this blessed retirement that we so desperately hold on to. If you're waiting to live in your future, you're missing out on the very present God has given you. To live is what? Because everything you fill in the blank there will lead to loss. But Paul says for himself in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. When you have the perspective that today my life is a living sacrifice for him, which is holy and acceptable to God. I will do whatever he desires to do in me and through me, which will include loving other people or working hard or, or, or stopping and smelling the roses and looking at all the beautiful uh, display here we have in the spring outside. Just, just enjoying the life that God has given you. 
Even Christ said when he was walking on this earth, it's amazing how much he accomplished in just the 30 plus years he was here. He did more in the three years with the disciples than some of us do in an entire lifetime. But he always said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. And he was satisfied. I think this is where Jesus is calling us to when it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. See, God has given you mercy to just present your body, your life, as a living sacrifice. The third word that we're highlighting today is acceptable. Some translations call it pleasing. And it's repeated twice, as I mentioned. We're going to present our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. In verse 2, he says, a renewal of your mind by the testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable or pleasing and perfect. The link between the two is in verse 1. It's about your being in a way that you are pleased and acceptable to God. God, by his mercy, has made you acceptable. And then it moves on to from being to knowing and doing, where your mind is turned over to God to do, to, to live out that which is pleasing to him. He has made you pleasing. He's made you acceptable. And now live out that acceptable, pleasing thing that he would find joy in. We have to be, we have to do. And it all you know, is on the, on the fulcrum of knowing and receiving from him what he desires of us. Acceptable. The fourth word is transformed. I'm skipping over conform because it's not something we're to do. We're not to be conformed to the world. We naturally do that. Therefore, rather than focusing on uh, uh, conforming, we ought to focus on transforming in the grace of Christ. Change is required as a believer. I'm thankful by the mercy of God we don't have to change before we're accepted or received by Jesus. He takes us where we are, but he transforms us into the image of his son. We are perfectly useless as Christ-exalting Christians if, we, if all we do is conform to the world around us. We are a waste if all we do is become like the rest of the world with our endless pursuits that do not satisfy nor last. So therefore, our focus ought to be in transformation. And here, the transformation begins on the inside, not the outside. We get so worried about transforming what people see when we don't have what's in us that needs to be there to make us transformed. The Word of God is what transforms us. It begins in our mind. What we think, we end up doing. If we're fearful, then we step back. But it all started here. If we're bold and confident in something, we step out in faith. Our mind is the, the fulcrum by which all action takes place. God changes us from the inside out. And he placed the Holy Spirit in us so that we would be transformed in the mind. How you think about life depends on what you, the input you get and what you read and how you, uh, what you meditate upon. Now, I've never had a heart attack, but I have heard that it can change your life. Would you confess how many of you have ever had a heart attack? 
a real heart attack, not, you know, you can't run out in the street kind of heart attack. You got a few out here that's had a heart attack. It's just incredible. My grandfather had a couple of them and had some bypass surgeries. And, and it's amazing. The heart is such a vital organ. In Bob Bimson's book, I was reading, it says, uh, his book is titled, See You at the House. He recounts a story of a friend who had a heart attack. At first, it didn't appear the man would live, but eventually he did recover. And months later, Bob asked him these, these uh, questions. He said, well, how did you like your heart attack? I don't know if that's an appropriate question to ask somebody like that, but Bob did. I guess he was good friends with, with this man. Well, the man answered, it scared me to death. Almost. Well, would you do it again, Bob asked. Well, no. So Bob asked him, would you recommend it for others? He said, definitely not. Then Bob said, does your life mean more to you now than it did before? He said, yes. Well, you and Nell have always had a beautiful marriage, but are you closer now than ever? He said, absolutely. How about your new granddaughter? He goes, oh, should I, can I show you a picture of her? Oh, I can't wait to see her again. He says, do you have a new compassion for people? A deeper understanding and a greater sympathy? He says, without a doubt. He asked him, do you know the Lord in a deeper, richer fellowship than you ever realized could be possible? He said, my life has been changed since that day. So Bob says, well, how'd you like that heart attack? It's times like that that makes you reevaluate the preciousness of life every moment. And let us not wait till we have a heart attack to get that serious. Do you realize that our heart can be transformed immediately when we trust in Christ and we begin to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing to him? That this is where we find our joy, and then we can live in peace. It begins in our mind. Here's the fifth word and the final word we'll focus on today. The focus is not getting on the outside of the cup. The focus is on the inside. What is the goal of renewed mind? It is the right biblical thinking. The renewal of the mind so we'd understand God's will. We would be able to test and discern what is God's will. What is good, pleasing, acceptable, and perfect according to him. Without clear guidance from God's word, I wouldn't know God's direction. I wouldn't know his will. And I would be confused. Nothing would change nor be pleasing or acceptable. Paul shares this, this thought but because it's not unique to him, it is a biblical command. I'm going to share with you 1 Peter chapter 1 because Peter had the same understanding of living daily for God when he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. How do you prepare it? You've got to be in God's word. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on, as obedient children. See, obedience comes out of understanding the, the will and the mind of God. 
He says, do not be conformed. We've heard that word. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy from I am holy. Is that your heart today? I just want to be holy. I just want to be Christ exalted. I don't control tomorrow, neither can I change my past. But today, by the mercies of God, I can just live out the enablement he has given me to just walk in step with his spirit and live under the love that reigns in my life, the love that Jesus has given me. Pursuing Christ, exalting truth. Reading my Bible cover to cover to see Christ on every page. Reading Bible-saturated, uh, Christ-exalting writers of great men and women of, of the past or the present. And perhaps even developing a habit of meditating on the perfections of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, the writer gives us a call. He says, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts. He didn't say three weeks ago. He doesn't say in five years from now. He says today. Because today is the only day you have. The only day you've been promised is that you're alive, you're breathing, you have ears to hear and eyes to see today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For some of you, you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're not living for him because you just live for yourself. And let's just be quite honest. It's getting you nowhere. You're running on a treadmill and it, you're not making any progress. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. He's saying, receive my forgiveness. I'll fill you with joy overflowing. You will be transformed and you'll never find any greater joy. Or contentment. For some of you, the believers in this room that have been distracted or discouraged, you've been running here and there, and you know the truth, but boy, you've had everything else fill the blank of I live for whatever it is. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Just claim him. Say, God, I, I, I need that gentle reminder, that, that great nudge, that I. I need your rest today. Today is your day, and I just want to live sacrificially for you. Perhaps this week you'll meditate on some of these words. Mercy, living, acceptable, transformed, and mind. Where is your mind today? Is it in his will and his word, or is it in a thousand other place that will just wear you out and never satisfy?